Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So I've got a little song to sing. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare and the women you will wow. Cole Porter from Kiss Me Kate. With the wife of the British ambassador, try a crack out of Troilus and Cressida. If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her, tell her what Tony told Cleopatra. But, pardon me, but my book today is Shakespeare. Did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? I mean, Stuart Kells enters the debate and adds to the controversy (coughs) in his work Shakespeare's Diary. So, Stuart, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Last time I was here, I think Sophie Laguna was in the room and I was completely transfixed by Sophie. So I'm having all these nice sort of... You know, um, yeah, yeah, definitely the sort did, of did en- endorphins. Te- did we have technical difficulties last uh, time? N- no, no comment. <laughs> no comment. Now, the initial challenge you sort of pose in this book, for want of a better word, is that there's no record of Shakespeare's library. What's going mm. on? Well, it, it's a loaded question um, because a lot of this is around, you know, what we expect to see from a literary author like Shakespeare. There's lots and lots of layers of expectation in that sort of in that sort of sentiment, and that's changed over time. the the um, The idea of what a, an author might leave behind in the 16th century was quite different to the 18th century or to the 21st century. But there's no sort of this is this book belongs to Bill. Well, there are. There's lots of books that actually say, you know, very helpfully, this was Shakespeare's copy and this is where he lived and and this is what he thought about it. Um, 99.9% of that kind of material was produced by um, very, very creative and audacious forgers. Yes. And and the collection of Shakespeare's work uh, didn't occur till after his death. Uh, that's correct. There was a, there was a very quick, uh, short, uh, collected edition uh, straight after his death, and then there's the the great first folio in 1623, which has 36 of his plays. Leaves a lot of important things out and includes some doubtful things in. But yeah, that, that all happened after his death. But then the background of how plays were considered in Shakespeare's day. I mean, you would have thought they would have been released in his day, but then basically the collection. Uh, were, were posthumous. Uh, a lot of the plays were published in his lifetime, but they were published in uh, sometimes very scrappy editions, small print runs, very cheap, uh, little chapbook type format, a bit like the pulp fiction of, of his time. But there was also a method in that madness because you didn't want actually other people grabbing mm. hold of your works. That's correct. There's all sorts of layers of, of claiming and, and copyright or pre-copyright sort of um, conduct. But also um, there's a lot of fast and loose dealing. So publishers would use um, Shakespeare's name on material that wasn't written by Shakespeare and what and Shakespeare had no hand in. So there's a wonderful thing called the Passionate Pilgrim because uh, Shakespeare's reputation early on was as much as anything as, as an erotic poet and a sexy poet and a sexy playwright. And so people opportunistically put his name on things that he had nothing to do with. And they also put his name on plays that he had a relatively small role in. And so one big thread in the whole story around Shakespeare in authorship is, is the role of co-authors and other voices. Well, other voices. Let's, let's start exploring this a little because there are so many voices mm. in Shakespeare's writing. For example, Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. He plagiarised mercilessly. 
Well, it's a little bit unfair to call it plagiarism because uh, it sort of predates that concept. But yeah, he was very much in that um, tradition that goes back to medieval times and even it, even to classical times of uh, incrementally changing and adapting texts. He also incrementally changed and adapted his own uh, works. So there is no single authoritative edition of any of his plays or poems. Well, what you write or is poems. many different verbs have been used to describe what Shakespeare <laughs> was doing. He acquired, adapted, appropriated, converted, revised, synthesised, improved, borrowed, copied, co-opted, reused, reworked, repackaged, stole. Let us again remember he worked at a time when authorship, plagiarism and copyright were differently conceived. That doesn't mean that people didn't complain. There, there, were, there were peer uh, playwrights who got quite cross about what Shakespeare was doing. But this adds to the notion and, and adds to this sort of continual um, sort of attitude that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. Mm. Well, there's lots of different ways that that question's framed as well. There's, there's the sort of mainstream questioning of Shakespearean authorship, which is about how much did he depend on prior authors, how much did he work with co-authors, and how much did editors and others bring to the to the works, particularly the published works afterward. So that's one set of questions which are more or less well-founded well and, and, and orthodox. Then there's a whole bunch of other parallel questions around concepts of secret authorship and, you know, there's sort of uh, someone pulling the strings in the background. Well, you you sort of touch on this uh, with mm. Neville and, and such like. Uh, Sir John Neville, wasn't Henry, he? Henry. Sir Henry Neville. Yeah. Um, and and that these speculations and, and people trying to prove that that uh, Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare mm. or Neville wrote Shakespeare, you sort of take up one of those, but basically you you debunk a lot of that. Well, as as you um, sort of mentioned earlier, um, there are multiple ideas of what a literary author of Shakespeare's statue would be like, and there's these very the very serious sort of respectable ideas of Shakespeare as this sort of you know 18th or 19th century concept of this sort of great literary author. That's more or less the concept of Shakespeare that some of these secret author theories have in mind. The idea that he would kind of start with a blank sheet and and bring its inspired poetic content, very serious and respectable inspired poetic content but that version doesn't really fit how we know the plays and poems were produced as i said there's a lot of work from prior authors there's co-authors there's editors um shakespeare's um talent was a very earthy grounded um irreverent sort of sort of talent as much as what and he was very integrated in the daily cut and thrust of the theater that picture doesn't really fit a detached you know uber literary author somewhere else yeah well he grabbed reshaped it and mm. threw it on to the stage yes. for commercial reasons more than anything else. But what gets me, and it's something that's sort of um, not necessarily touched on in the book, is this poetic sensibility. Mm. So that notion that he's grabbing and reutilising, but then the way it appears on the page, we do see it as poetic. There's a lot of things going on, though, in the idea of a Shakespearean poetic sensibility. There's what he's taken from other authors, including Chaucer and, mm. and Ovid and Boccaccio and others. So his sources were pretty high pedigree, uh, a lot of them, um, Plutarch. Uh, but also other authors are bringing their own sensibility. Editors are imposing order. Now, if you think about the two versions, uh, well, the, the first two versions of, of Hamlet, 
the first quarto and the second quarto. The first quarto, which is legitimately Shakespearean and, and provided the foundation for the second quarto, it's rough. It's very, you know, not what we would think of as Shakespeare or of Hamlet today. Um, and then there's um, also the thing about Shakespeare is that people bring themselves to it. It's a bit of the Ern Malley type effect that, you know, we, we, we impose our own expectations of poetry and we have all sorts of layers of prejudice about Shakespeare as well. Well, there was an, a criminal act perpetrated on Shakespeare in schools where they, mm. they did a school's version and they edited mm. out all the smut, which didn't leave much behind. <laughs> That's right. I, honestly, I think the, the way that Shakespeare was taught in schools, certainly when I went through, was designed to squeeze out any fun and to squeeze out any interest in Shakespeare. And it was, you know, for a long time, very effective. You're, you're talking to someone who taught Shakespeare. <laughs> so you're implicated in that. Yeah, but, yes. you know, we can still be friends, though. Oh, thank you. Um, but basically, that whole notion then of... Um, the, what was applied after Shakespeare wrote the text, people rewriting it, mm. uh, reutilising it. I can't, for example, imagine that somebody who said, this is the two-hour traffic of our stage, putting on a show that goes for four hours. Well, that's a very, very good point. So a lot of the published versions were published and intended for reading and they had this really strong make-weight element. They might be 40 or 50% longer than the, the performed version. Hamlet uh, in the first folio is much longer than would ever have been performed, and it took about 100 years for people to forget that mm. and start performing the reading versions. But also, um, the, the, um, yeah, there's, there's this sort of re recasting of, of Shakespeare that happens over time. The 18th century, the champion of the 18th century Shakespeare was, was David Garrick, famous actor and, and, uh, and a promoter of Shakespeare. His famous Shakespeare Jubilee was his turning point in the regard for Shakespeare. But two important things about the Jubilee. One, there were no Shakespearean performances at all. And the second thing is to the extent that David Garrick was implicated in Shakespearean performance, he was performing versions of Shakespeare that had been fundamentally rewritten, different endings, different, you know, like you say, all the smut taken out. And so the, the, the 18th century Shakespeare, which was responsible for the modern fame of Shakespeare, wasn't Shakespeare. Yeah. And, but here's another thing. What you do to sort of establish a lot of this is to look at what happened in the antiquarian book industry mm. after mm. Shakespeare. So it's sort of a, a sleight of hand in many ways, taking what happened after Shakespeare and applying it back. A lot of what I'm trying to do is prime the reader to see what kind of behaviours happen in publishing and in the world of, of books. Um, I, I think a lot of books that have tried to rebut the Shakespearean authorship question have sort of failed because they've been really blunt and linear and they've cut to the chase and just said this is all nonsense. I don't think you can do that. You need to... You need to pass the nonsense, uh, and you also need to walk up to it in the right kind of way. And so I, I use things like the Barrington fraud and the Thomas Wise fraud to show the kinds of things that happen in publishing around fake authorship and around fake title page dates and fake imprints to, to prime the reader to say, well, let's think about these things in a different way. Well, to, yeah, to look at the, the reverence with which we hold Shakespeare, but hang on, there's something that's been playing underneath. Well, there's 400 years of it, 400 yeah. years. Even in his lifetime, people were perpetrating Shakespearean hoaxes and they've been doing it for 400 years. Yeah, but also you say uh, there's, there's reference made to Shakespeare writing to a template. 
Mm. There's an element of formula in in Shakespeare, uh, the way it's produced, the kind of the kind of elements that you would see recurring, but even particular scenes and, and and snatches of dialogue are repeated across the works. Sometimes that's probably Shakespeare using a blockwise uh, authorship method, but also it's when when things are padded out or, or re re prepared for for publication, the editors may be using different content as well. And all, but I mean, you can look at Lady Macbeth's speech and Juliet's speech, mm. uh, and basically both. Call on the night three times, so it's it's almost formulaic. And there's a lot of recurring elements too around, you know, um, randy foreigners and and un, unhappy bastards and and uh, adulterous kings. You know, the the the, um, the core of Shakespeare, the the sort of you know half a dozen or a dozen very Shakespearean works that we think of as quintessentially Shakespeare, all have a very strong family resemblance textually and in vocabulary and in structure. But I would say also that Shakespeare falls away very quickly after that, and it gets very un-Shakespearean quite quickly. And so out of the 36 first folio plays, there are some that are pretty scrappy and pretty you know, unperformable and not really very Shakespearean. There's, there's a lot going on. I mean, you look at some of the plays, and they're very awkward dramatically mm. uh, for some reason. I mean, Macbeth is really sharp and, and a psychological thriller in many ways, but something like Measure for Measure is awkward, the plot. Oh, he's, he's thrown in something mm. to get to the end. It it is inconsistent. One of the things that's going on there with the first folio is that it does uh, downplay and and suppress the role of co-authors, including Marlowe and, and um, Middleton and people like that. And so I, I don't want to blame them for the bad parts. Um, but sometimes it, it does seem that when they've put together the first folio, they've, they've sort of cobbled together different bits, not necessarily in the most coherent way. You also say he does not seem to have been driven by abstract ideas of fame and posterity. He engages with those sort of concepts in the sonnets and elsewhere, but I don't think of him as... Uh, uh, everyone brings their own idea of Shakespeare to this field, and I have my own idea. Um, but I don't think of him as a sort of an uber-literary author. I don't think of him as someone who's very sentimental about the manuscripts. I mean, there's, there's some incredible treasures in this field. Imagine finding the handwritten Shakespearean manuscript of the sonnets that were circulated, circulating mm. in the 1590s. That's entirely lost now. I, I, I could put a provisional valuation on that of you know $400 million, and you would have institutions competing to buy that yeah. because it would be like the DNA of the 21st century in one manuscript. And the same thing with the manuscript for, for Hamlet. You know, imagine what that sort of thing would be worth. I don't want to be crass and sort of put a dollar figure on it too sharply, but those treasures are up there with the Mona Lisa. But they it. weren't considered treasures at the time. That's exactly necess- right. Necessarily. And, and the plays, he was just whipping them off to get a production going in the theatre so he could get revenue. Now, you do make a suggestion at the end. I don't think we want to give it away necessarily as to you know Shakespeare's library per se mm. or what might have happened to it. I think people are going to have to read this for themselves. But there isn't as much blood on the panel as I thought there might be <laughs> on, on over the desk given, you know, people have very oh, totally. entrenched views. Yes, we, we had hecklers at the, um, at the launch. They were the most polite 
and and civilised hecklers uh, that you would ever ever meet. Did, uh, did they heckle in verse uh, in iambic pentameter? The whole launch, everything was <laughs> everything was in verse. Yeah, <laughs> people weren't allowed to speak otherwise. Um, but no, it's 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 a very fraught field, and there's very very strong views on both sides or all sides of the authorship question. And even within, it's incredibly schismatic as well. Even within the particular heresies, you'll have very strong passionate uh, differences. Stuart, we're going to have to end the interview. Unfortunately, I could keep talking forever. The book is Shakespeare's Library, the author Stuart Kells, and it's a text publication. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Right. Well, I'm going to move into another text publication. It's a text half hour today. We're we're just getting over winter, so today's book was a warming read in more ways than one. The title, The Last Summer of Ada Bloom. Welcome, Martine Murray. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, when and where is this summer going to take us? Where's it taken place? Well, because I'm so lazy as far as research goes, it just takes place where I live, which is in Castlemaine. But <laughs> oddly, the reviews I've read of it so far, because I don't actually mention that, one just didn't seem to invent somewhere and, and said, said it, this, this all happens in Wattle Gully, which I, I'm like, I don't know where that came from. The other one thought Bendigo, because I do mention Bendigo, but it just does happen in Castlemaine, probably even in the house that I'm living in. And uh, how long ago? It's in the 80s. Um, it's two years after John Lennon has been killed. Right. And uh, if anybody can remember, somebody is compared to Delvine Delaney. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to have a bit of age to know that. Yeah, I do show my age. Uh, and another factor, of course, in the title is nine-year-old Ada Bloom. She doesn't have a phone, so we know it was set back a long time ago. And she's, so she's not into serious screen time. What is she doing, our little Ada? Well, I guess you'd call Ada, she's, she's, she's kind of a little mystic, really. She's, for me, she sort of represents, well, it's, it's a child's mind, but it's also because I'm kind of interested in the primitive mind or the primordial mind and that the way that a child, before they kind of um, fall into self-consciousness, they still have this magical way of, of being and, and a way of um, imaginatively engaging with the natural landscape so that she sort of has this vaguely poetic, mythic relationship to the world around her and creates her own sort of world while she's doing that. And names, William Blake. What's William Blake? William Blake is a tree. <laughs> <laughs> she's got the name out of her mother's library yeah. and called this Big, big, tall tree, William Blake. She makes up stories about elves with the younger kids next door, but it's in the bushland behind where she lives that she comes across a windmill. Now, it's not its not a magical windmill. It it's actually becomes a bit sinister. It is. It's a bit like I, that scene... Um, that was one of the few things that actually happened to me as a child that I did come across a windmill like that, and I've, and uh, it had it has a ladder, a rotting ladder, and I um, took the dare to be the one to climb down that ladder to a hole that we couldn't even hear the the end of. And years years later, I kept thinking about that. Probably is my worst idea of of dying. That and what what made me do that? Um, and so because I was so interested in what would make a child do something like that, I just trusted that and put that put that scene in. And then I felt like. You know, as Chekhov says, if you if you have a gun in the first scene, it it has to go off by the end. So I knew that um, that that hole 
had to had to um, play yeah. a role. And of through. course, you have Ada showing off, going down that mine shaft yeah. in front of her uh, brother and his footy friends, and his, her brother Ben, fifteen years old. He's seen as a charming rascal. Well, why is this? I think uh, what what you feel in the book is that. Um, the, the book basically is told from the point of view of, of five people in a family and you're, you're very much inside the head of each child. And I'm very interested in the way um, the other forms an informed self mm. and the, the very different ways that that can happen even within that, that small landscape of a nuclear family. And, and Ben has a particular relationship with the mother, which I guess is the archetypal um, devouring mother love, which means that he walks out into the world almost feeling as if he owns it, and because of that, because of that attitude, the world sort of opens itself to him in a way that it doesn't to the other members of the family. We're going to hear this from page two hundred and sixteen. But uh, he's yes, he's idolised by his mother, but he's also good looking, like his father, and very sporty on the footy field. So let's hear, hear from page two hundred and sixteen. Ben's self-assurance was unsettling. It was as if he knew the ropes so well he didn't need to use them anymore. He was too well-wired for his own good, all savvy and charm and not enough truth. He was almost the opposite of Ada, in whom truth burned so bright it made her fierce. Yes, so, you know, he sees this about his sisters and he's a little jealous of the closeness between Ada, nine years old, and his older sister, Tilly. Now, Tilly's just finishing year 12. How, you know, sort of Ada and Tilly, um, well, let's hear a little bit, another little bit more from page 38 about Ada. Oh, no. (laughs) I've lost it. (laughs) Okay. Ada felt very fiercely that she knew the beauty of things. It wasn't just the sunsets, which everyone knew about. Ada also knew the coiled patterns of snail shells and the sliding of raindrops down windows, the fine veins in leaves, the glass balls of dew on nasturtium leaves. Tilly used to notice things, but now she sometimes forgot to look. Because Tilly's growing up. Tilly's 19 and uh, she, she actually gives the little sister some advice. Here's some advice for you when you're older. If a boy can't dance... He probably can't kiss either because it shows he doesn't know tenderness and listening. Mm. So, you know, they are growing apart a bit. Their parents seem a little remote too. A father working long hours, selling life insurance. And I love the way that Martine Murray discusses this. Sometimes he was dissatisfied with life and plainly sick of death. And for you know, <laughs> a life, a life uh, insurance salesman, I thought that was rather good. And... Martha, the mother at home, and she's always seen as prickly. Why prickly? Oh, I, well, I think Martha. M- M- Martha's a difficult character, difficult mother, mm. difficult wife, um, and she's someone who I guess felt that she could escape the strictures of her own childhood by marrying, um, and then found that she just found herself in another, another sort of prison and. She's at that point in her life where her children are growing up and she's realising that she never – well, that she, she, she fears she had a potential that she never realised and, and it makes her um, – it makes her have a very fraught relationship particularly with the daughters. Yeah. Another quote from Martine's book. Martha had a miserable case of quiet, unspectacular, unwarranted, 
unhappiness. <laughs> well, she's kind of conscious of it at the yeah. same time, which is, the, yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope that, you know, at the same time that you kind of resent Martha, that you can also forgive her oh. at the same time because, yeah, it's so... Uh, She'd clean or cook to appease this this feeling of um, not not being good at motherhood or anything in particular. But when she spoke, her family heard a tone of irritated self-sacrifice. <laughs> and I think, oh, nagging mother. <laughs> we all know that. Now, she thinks her handsome uh, husband, Mick, is only interested in sex and tennis. And Ada, the little nine-year-old, isn't telling this story. So we read about why the relationship is not ideal. And uh, But what's the story that they're telling the family about why they married? It looked pretty happy, you know, that it was young, as you said. He was handsome. She was the most beautiful thing in the room or whatever. Yeah, there is a big... that yeah. I ended up, um, as well as trying to progress the story, forward I kind of drilled down vertically in a way to Mm -hmm. try and once I go into someone's head then I feel like I have to understand well why are they like that so I've gone back down into their uh their youth at the same time that exploring the youth of their the same their children at that at that similar age of um becoming adult I guess coming out into the adult world yeah making choices and perhaps not all of them quite right well no no it's a it's a it's a terrible case of people who haven't been well led not leading other people Mm. and you kind of go (laughs) there's a lot of mistakes what surprised me with this was the honesty or the dishonesty the secret keeping between the mother and the father and um but the honesty between Tilly, the older sister, to her younger sister, you know, telling her about her activities. Yeah, well, I feel I felt like that's the redemptive relationship in the story in, in that I felt that somehow Ada's innocence has been somewhat preserved by having this sort of umbrella of Tilly protecting her from the horrors of Martha or <laughs> the impact of the family in some way. So I'm, I really cherished their relationship and um, felt that that was the, the, the thing that had to bring it home in the end to, ho- to be able to give them both something to hold on to to hopefully move out into the world. Another quote um, about Ada. She had strange sensitivities and unearthly scrutiny that made people uneasy. And this, even her parents... Yeah, yeah, they're 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 well aware of um, her her strangeness, I guess. Because she sees something, she sees something her father does, and she knows that she can't ever question him about it. Mm. She's got to keep it a secret. But another quote, another really good one: "Nothing was the same as it used to be. What she had seen had got inside her, and Ada knew it would never sink down into the pleasant." jumbled obscurity of other memories. Ooh, I'll have to leave leave readers to work out just what she saw. But um, uh, childhood fantasies. You know, Tilly is growing up too, so she's, she's too old to be yourself. But, you know, she doesn't really know who she is. And it, it's, it's hard, isn't it, for a girl that, you know, she, she's leaving school does she she thinks she should have sex by now yeah there's, yeah there's the the sex questions always lingering but I think I I think Tilly's very much in that stage well well I feel like I'm probably still in that stage of feeling that there isn't really perhaps a 
a fixed self and so she's discovering that the various modulations of self that occur as she um, meets other people like she meets she she meets a piano teacher who mm-hmm. has a, a one of the few positive impacts um, on her in her life and and uncovers different versions of herself and finds that at this stage confusing and disorienting we're not going in very much about the other com- people in the community, but it really was a lovely community. You know, once you sort of dug a little bit deeper, as you said, you'd like to dig down. Yeah. You know, I think everybody in that community is a story that I would have liked to have known. I would have liked to have known about <laughs> Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the internal family dynamics compound with the happenings outside the home. What happens to, Till- what happens to Ada's chooks? Or something you did if you, yeah. you know, the farm life yeah. you ex- expect. Do you there? The, the chooks go to the fox. Yeah. Um. <laughs> they, they certainly do. And and as Ada says, that there's a pattern to things. Ada saw it everywhere. Spiders' webs, seasons, oceans, seed pods. And when Ada came across another death in her garden, she felt she had to do something about it. Well, you know, from the chooks we go into a fox and a fire and then the rain and back to the windmill. Oh, yeah, it's very biblical, isn't it? I, I was playing God up there. <laughs> She's got an interesting thought about God too, young Aid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it relates to her mytho- mytho-poetic vision of, yeah, the world. Just what the world's going to do. Mm. So really this summer, it's the last summer of Ada Bloom, but it's not just for Ada Bloom the last summer it's it's actually the, the entire family changed yeah it's yeah it's a, it's a long hot changing transforming summer <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so from one big library in your book at text david we have one family <laughs> well, the library is a family in a way that's great true. companions well martine murray i enjoyed the last summer of ada bloom published by text and, and i was interviewing Stuart kells who wrote Shakespeare's Library. Okay. Well, we've run out of time again. I thought chooks had their heads cut off. They weren't caught by foxes. They, they, oh, ho, ho. The tomahawk comes down when you... That's what farmers used to do with chooks. Ch- chooks. Foxes take their heads off too. Yeah. Oh, well, there's oh, these. Absolutely. Same, same way to go. <laughs> <laughs> See, Poor you Chook. Might, you, you might know lots about Shakespeare, but don't know much I, about foxes. foxes. There you go. So until next time, thanks for listening. Cheerio.